First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hey there, and welcome to season three of Creative Control. It feels so good to say that and even better to be back. I figured the best way to kick things off this season would be with an overview of where we are now in the creator economy. In 2020, we saw this massive influx of creators entering the space, right? 2021 kept that same energy for the most part, but it was in 2022 that we began to see a bit of a slowdown as broader economic factors came into play. I wanted to get a sense of how the creator economy is riding things out and how the space is maturing overall. I posed these questions to my esteemed panelists last month during our annual Fast Company Grill at South by Southwest. So please enjoy this live recorded episode of Creative Control. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, I don't know if you're here at the last session. I don't know if you're tired of me. I just moderated a panel, but I'm excited about this one as well. Uh, my name is Casey Finey. I'm a multimedia editor at Fast Company, and I also host Fast Company's podcast, Creative Control, where we explore the people and forces that are driving the creator economy and what it all means for its future. So this panel, Navigating the Creator Economy 2.0, is perfect. Before we get started, I want to allow my wonderful panelists to briefly introduce themselves and then we can get into this conversation because there's a lot of ground to cover. So Adrian, let's start with you. Sounds good. Thanks, Casey. My name is Adrian Lahens and I lead global operations for TikTok Creator Marketing Solutions. We have a platform called the TikTok Creator Marketplace, which is the official platform for brand and creator collaborations on TikTok. Hi, I'm Julie Hallock. So happy to be here. Uh, I'm the global head of the video creator program for Amazon Live Shoppable Video. So we have both am live streaming on Amazon and shoppable videos. So any content, tag some products and you can make it shoppable. I'm Brent Weinstein. I'm the chief development officer of Candle Media. We're a new media company founded by two Disney veterans, Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs. We've uh, acquired a number of companies like Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's company, Moonbug, which owns brands like Coco Melon and Blippi and things that hopefully many of your kids watch, uh, amongst others that we've acquired over the past 18 months. Hi, everyone. I'm Julian Reyes. I'm founder and CEO of Super Ordinary, um, a company we started four years ago, um, helping brands um, go global, um, particularly in Asia. Um, we recently acquired a company called Fanfix, which is an online monetization platform for creators. We're very excited about this space and we really believe in the creator economy and helping creators monetize themselves across the platforms. Nice. And, you know, the creator economy, it's really nothing new because like influencer marketing has been around for a while. People have been creating content online for a while. But in 2020, we saw this massive influx of people entering the creator economy. Like one study found there's like, what, more than 165 million creators globally entered the creator economy. So knowing that we're three years into this seismic shift, where would you all say we are now in the creator economy? Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting about the pandemic is that it created like a few problems for advertisers, which is 
during the pandemic, we all went into lockdown and it became almost impossible to create commercial content. All of the studios were closed. Um, you know, you couldn't really gather people together for production. And also it became a really big challenge for marketers to figure out how am I going to connect with consumers today when the whole world changed overnight. And so creators came in and really offered this opportunity to marketers to, you know, be able to create content, oftentimes, you know, solo, oftentimes out of their bedroom, and in a way that really connected with their own communities. And around 2020 was also a time that TikTok really came onto the scene in a really big way because TikTok made it easy for anyone to be a creator. And a lot of folks had a lot of time on their hands, right? And so a lot of people leaned into their creativity. Uh, and so this, you know, boom of creators really started to form in a really big way and a lot of money poured into the space. But if we think about like where the economy is growing, I personally think that we're like in the first inning of the creator economy. In 2022, uh, the total addressable market of the influencer marketing space specifically within the creator economy was $14 billion. And by 2030, it is projected to be $143 billion, billion with a B. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about 10x growth in just seven years is what we're expecting. I think what's so exciting about that opportunity for so many creators to find these, you know, 100% full-time jobs is that since 2020, we found so many opportunities for creators to actually diversify their revenues. So not only are more creators breaking through, but they're finding more opportunities in terms of how they can build their businesses. So for example, in 2020, Amazon Live launched the creator app. So any Amazon influencer could start live streaming. And, you know, once they live stream, that live stream could be eligible for millions of Amazon customers to see. On the flip side, another opportunity, they could take that content that they're making for other platforms, use, using their content strategy, bring it over to Amazon, tag some products. Now it's also shoppable. That's potential passive income. And if creators are gonna become sustainable and it's gonna continue to grow exactly to your point, right? they need to have that ability to diversify their revenue in a number of different ways. Brent, what about you? Because I know you came from like UTA. You were working with creators before you got into Candle Media. So like, how are you thinking about this influx? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to age myself here. Uh, at UTA in 2006, uh, we became the first company in the world of any type, agency management, PR, et cetera, to launch a division entirely dedicated to representing what we would now call influencers. And again, 2006, YouTube wasn't monetizing. Social media didn't exist. So I've been in this space for a while. I had hair. Oh, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, the lack of hair like, yeah. helps not age you. Exactly. So, like, <laughs> uh, but you know, fast forward to today and, and the creator economy is thriving. I, I think that most people think about it in the context of individual creators, and I think that's absolutely a, a high growth business. We at Candle are very active in the creator economy, but we think about it a little bit differently. We think the creator economy is a way for someone or some company who creates content to go directly to an audience and then have a variety of ways to monetize that relationship. So it used to be in Hollywood, if you wanted to create a TV show, you had to go hope that NBC or HBO would make your show. YouTube being the first real change agent made it possible to create something and get it in front of a global audience and all these other platforms that have emerged, all of these types of services have made it not only so individual creators can reach an audience and monetize what they do, but companies like ours. So one of our biggest 
businesses is Moonbug, which owns things like Coco Melon. We've got 150 plus million subscribers to the YouTube channel. It's the number one YouTube channel in the world. We've got a massive audience on Netflix. We're in 80 plus countries, 20 plus languages, uh, but we have massive consumer products businesses, live events businesses, publishing businesses, audio businesses, and it all stems from the fact that we can go direct to the audience, and that's such a powerful capability that simply didn't exist in a efficient, functional way until more recently. And Julian, what does an additional 165 million creators globally mean at Super Ordinary? Um, so, you know, my background, I started in China, and I think we saw a lot of the early listening there, what was going on with the, you know, what they call the key opinion leaders. And just to Adrian's point, you know, $14 billion. We have one creator in China that did $4 billion in sales in 10 days. So if you can think about the size of the market, it's actually a lot bigger. And um, when you think about um, these creators, we think of them as small and medium-sized enterprises. These guys need infrastructure, they need um, teams around them. And you know, our view is that you know, the 165 million will grow to 2 billion one day. And for us to do that, we're going to have to provide services. So um, at Fanfix, which was our first acquisition, we help creators monetize their content through um, direct messaging. And one of the things we noticed was that with everyone on this panel, they're building a lot of services for these creators, how to monetize themselves. And we believe that if we can find ways to consolidate and, and help these creators find TikTok and find Amazon wishlist and, and all the different content, it's really exciting. So we're launching, um, it's a small plug, it's our own um, LinkedIn bio product this week, um, which will help um, these creators bring a lot of their services under one roof. Kind of to that point, I mean, we saw like a vast array of creator economy startups come with like the, the amount of creators coming into the space. So these are companies that are providing business services, creative solutions for creators. And according to recent data, venture capitalists pumped $2.5 billion into those startups, which that doesn't sound too bad, except when you realize that that's actually down 50% from 2021. But on the other side, like in 2022, the number of brand deals creators made was up 50% from 2021. So you have this kind of people, like the, the amount of money that VCs are pumping into these companies kind of on the downturn a little bit, but then the amount of brand deals coming in is like on the upswing. So what do you make of that discrepancy? I think we're seeing a lot of integration success with brands and creators coming together. And the reason why is that Creators have become foundational to the shopping journey, ultimately, right? There's this convergence that's been happening for a long time between shopping and the media landscape and social media bringing in all these immersive and incredible formats that have completely proliferated and risen at scale, right? And so if you see all of that together, that's created this opportunity for brands to connect with new audiences because consumers follow creators and it's all built on authenticity. It's just completely paramount to everything, right? And so what ends up happening is that they're able, to, brands are able to get to new audiences and see a lot of success, right? And I think that's really where the connection can kind of go on, right? And that's why we're also gonna see a lot of growth. Yeah, and to, to complement that too, we have some stats at TikTok where we show that 
brands who are partnering with creators are seeing a 26% lift in brand favorability, a 22% lift in brand recommendations, and 71% of TikTok users say that a creator's authenticity is what motivates them to purchase from a brand. So keeping in mind also as marketers that working with creators is very effective and it is a full funnel strategy. But it's impacting lots of businesses, not just the types of businesses that we most commonly associate with the creator economy. The creator economy, we think about platforms, we think about you know, services, we think about companies like Spotter or Jelly Smack. But you, know, you look at what Reese Witherspoon, sorry, I'm going to keep talking about our business. Uh, has anyone here seen or watched or read uh, Daisy Jones and the Six? Anyone? Right. So this was something that she identified early on when it was a manuscript. The book hadn't been published. She put her Reese's Book Club imprint on it and picked it as a, a book club pick. It became a bestseller. That influence absolutely created a tidal wave of support behind and awareness for the book, which in turn created a ton of awareness for the TV series and the album. And it's been this massive success. And it all started with Reese's influence and the fact that she, through social media, had the ability to go to her audience, which is substantial, and say, I found a book that I think you're going to love. And by the way, I think she's done that 75 times in terms of identifying books and made them number one New York Times bestsellers, or maybe just New York Times bestsellers. I don't know if they were all number one. So that influence is really at the core of what we're seeing. And whether you're a TikTok star, a YouTube star, a merchant on Amazon, if you can connect with an audience and if they can relate to you in an authentic way, you have the ability to mobilize them to watch certain content, buy certain products, enjoy certain experiences. And that's a power that needs to be wielded responsibly, uh, especially for companies like ours where we're in like the kids and family business to a large degree because you know, if kids go to their parents and say, buy me this, I want to watch that, parents have to approve of what it is. But the ability to influence audiences is such a critical part of the future of, you know, content and commerce. The only thing I would add to that is, I think for brands, um, what we've seen is that marketing budget's obviously been cut a lot. And, you know, try and get, traditionally it was all about EMV, how much um, exposure you can get for your brand. But now what's happening is we're seeing a lot of um, our brands, you know, trying to get an ROI. And an ROI on short-term video content for many people is very challenging unless you really understand. And uh, there's not one brand I don't know who the CEO says, I need to put 20% of my budget now on TikTok, where it was 5% before, and they don't know how to do it. And they're all trying to figure it out. And I think that's going to be something that we're going to see over the next, you know, couple of years is really how to be more effective on our marketing because there was a spray gun approach before and now I think it's really about you know diversifying across multiple channels to see which ones are working the best and you know we're talking about all the amazing opportunities that this growing space is seeing but you can't grow that quickly without some strain I mean there's like a lot of pain points that can arise when you have this massive influx of people coming into a space so what particular pain points are you seeing and how are you addressing them? Yeah, absolutely. On TikTok, for example, when it comes to brand and creator collaborations, there are a lot of challenges. How do you find the right creators? How can you make sure that you're looking at the right data points to identify and partner with creators? How do you reach out to them? How do you make sure that you get the best quality work out of working with those creators? So 
those are the challenges that we're aiming to solve with the TikTok Creator Marketplace. Our focus is really making it like easy and seamless and efficient for brands to partner with creators. But we recognize that there's a lot of stakeholders in this space. There are brands, there's creators, there's talent agencies, there's media agencies, there's influencer marketing companies that have built their own technology stacks. And at TikTok, we recognize all of those players. And our ethos is really an ecosystem play where we're building tools and technology to really support all of those various stakeholders and meet the industry where it is and just make it easier and more effective. And the second piece I'll say is that you know, we're really focused on bi-directional opportunities, not only opportunities for brands to be able to be effective with their marketing, but also opportunities for creators to be able to monetize most effectively. One of the biggest challenges that this space has for creators is oftentimes they have to be very passive to the opportunities that are coming their way. And we're saying at TikTok, no, we're going to provide you with the tools as a creator to raise your hand, know, have the insights of what the brands are looking for, and allow the creators to have more control over their own destiny and be part of the opportunities that they want to be a part of directly. Yeah, so at Amazon, we're thinking a lot. We start with the customer and everything that we do. And so when we think about the influx of creators, it's been incredible because over the last few years, we've certainly seen an influx of creators. But it's really about creating the right tools as well and experiences so that the right content surfaces at the right time for the right customer. And then building the tools to make it an education, to make it as easy as possible for creators to find success on the platform. So we spent a lot of time and effort investing in those educational tools and feature sets to make it easy for creators to find success. Um, uh, there's a couple things that we're really focused on. I don't know if I'd call them pain points, but uh, one is monetization sort of broadly. YouTube did an amazing job early on creating their AdSense program, the auction environment, where it was really easy for advertisers to spend bulk amounts of money and reach targeted audience. They built Content ID, which enabled IP owners both to trust that a platform would help protect intellectual property, but also create a brand new revenue stream where it essentially turned piracy on its head. And they found a way to monetize it and turn it into fan engagement. Uh, and YouTube is just an amazing platform that is a huge part of the financial profile of our company. And we're very excited for you know, platforms like TikTok and Instagram and Snap and others to not only continue to grow their creator marketplace, which is about a lot of bespoke partnerships between creators and brands, but also open up things that look a lot more like AdSense, which is more uh, algorithmically driven advertising where you don't have to go into a bespoke deal each time. Because at a certain level of scale, individual creators can do a bunch of brand deals. But if you're representing, again, 10 billion video views a month on certain platforms, there's no way to monetize that through hand-to-hand -hand combat. You have to have like YouTube's auction system working effectively for you. So generally, monetization across other platforms is something that we're really excited about. And we think companies like TikTok and others are going to do a lot of innovative things there. We're also really focused on the movement in Western markets for live shopping to mimic more of what we've seen in Asia. We're so far behind. And uh, the power of what Julian described of an influencer or a media organization to sell a ridiculously high volume and, and dollar amount of product in a short period of time in a live environment 
that simply doesn't exist at that same scale here, but I'm hopeful that it will because it unlocks a lot of opportunities that don't exist today. Yeah, I often get asked the question, you know, from coming from Asia to see how social commerce is going to develop here. And the one thing that we saw in, in Asia was that, you know, 95% of creators don't make any money. Um, you know, just because you've got a camera and you're taking a photo in front of a nice restaurant, you think you're going to make money, it's not going to happen. And I think, um, you know, we really have to embrace, like, and think about what these creators need in terms of tools to really make that first $10. And I think, you know, by building these tools for these creators and think, putting yourself in the seat of these creators is really where we're going to win in the first phase. So I think what we're building it across Amazon and TikTok and, and so forth, it's really important. But, you know, what we've done with Fanfix, which is a company which my founders um, who are here today, they started a year and a half ago. Most of the guys on their platform are earning six, some are seven figures now. And I think what we're doing there is really understanding, you know, how to engage with your audience and, and solving those problems. So, you know, our goal is really to focus now on the long tail um, and make sure that, you know, those billion plus people have a place to start thinking about making and accessing all the tools that our panelists have to share. I love your point about that first $10. Um, because it's something that's, and of course I agree that live streaming is very important, um, but it's something that we've seen. And so we're still early with Amazon Live, but what is incredibly exciting is that we've seen creators that have now become full-time creators that started, right? They, they built out a profile and they built out a, a foundation across other platforms, then started live streaming. And then in that, getting to that, like re, that just that beginning, we have an incredible creator, Tiana Young-Morris. She was a criminal lawyer and now she's a full-time creator, primarily focused on live streaming. So you're starting, we're still early, right? But we are really seeing that foundational uh, shift. Absolutely. And the, the one other thing that, when you look at the parallels with the East and the West, um, one of the things that we noticed was people weren't buying products because they like the product itself. They were buying it because they like to support the creator. And that, if you have to think about that for a second, because supporting another person is a very kind thing to do from human, you know, human nature. So, you know, we always think about the supporter economy because I think in tough times like we're currently in for most people, it's about supporting your fellow human and, and that is going to continue. And I actually think people should start to embrace that. We'll start to see people embracing because when someone puts out a wish list on Amazon, sometimes they don't care about the wish list. They actually want to buy because they want to support the creator. And that's something that I think is a, you can't really quantify, but that's a big influence. We're going to take a quick break and when we're back, we'll hear how our panelists are thinking about political tensions affecting the creator economy. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. keep talking about this, you know, the 
east and west markets. And it's hard to ignore the fact that there are increasingly rising tensions between the U.S. and China. So what is top of mind for you as this larger political issue plays out? Because I know that, you know, with Super Ordinary, it's a big part of your business. And, you know, there's a lot going on with TikTok. I know you probably can't say much. It's fine, Adrian. But <laughs> like, I'm just curious, like, what is top of mind for everyone as we see these larger political factors play out? The way we think about it is we always have to take a very long-term view because if you get too short-term, you make silly decisions. And we kind of think that, you know, we're in a 30-year cycle of what we call decentralization across all businesses. And being the creator economy is that in itself that more and more fragmented businesses get started up. But I think in general, you can't be scared of what the tensions happen between the two because no matter what happens, there will always be the creator economy and we just have to continue, you know, playing the game. None of us can change that. <laughs> yeah, and something I'll just say, like from a TikTok perspective, we're on my team, we're super heads down, just really focused on how we can really provide opportunities and real world impact for creators. And, you know, to your point, I mean, like we're seeing creators, someone like uh, Bowman, you know, Martinez Reed, he is this creator who does these reality TV show parodies. So entertaining. I don't know if you guys have seen him. Yes. So good. Right. Like the Kardashians. Right. And, you know, he was about to graduate college with like no job prospect whatsoever. And, you know, he gets a, a deal, a talent deal with CAA, the same talent agency that represents Beyonce. And now you can think about the, the opportunities that he has. Maybe he's the Reese Witherspoon of the future. Who knows? Right. Um, and there's just so many stories like that of creators who are able to really find opportunities like on TikTok, but also off the platform and are able to to really make a real living, uh, you know, working with brands and finding so many opportunities through our, our solution. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, years ago, Reese Witherspoon met two women in Nashville, uh, Joanna and Clea, who had built a small home decorating, home organizing business on Instagram called The Home Edit. And she loved them. She thought they stood for something. She thought they were fantastic personalities. She was right. Shocker, Reese has great taste. And they worked together to create a television show, which was very successful on Netflix, and then build these massive consumer product lines at Walmart and the Container Store. Uh, we ultimately ended up acquiring the business, and it now sits as a division of Hello Sunshine. But all that started was, uh, similar to your story, two women who had a point of view, who started on social media, and built this big, massive business off the back of that without ever really needing to go through any gatekeeper at least at the outset. And now it's one of the most successful product lines uh, at Walmart uh, and the media side of the business continues to thrive. So the power of utilizing these types of technologies to launch IP, to launch brands, to build businesses is incredible. Uh, and it's something you know, for us at Candle, we're gonna continue to wield uh, every single day. I was just gonna say that the common thread of across all of us is that it all comes down to trust, right? It's that trusted relationship between the customer and the creator, right? That's why we want creators to be themselves. That's, that's how the creator economy is essentially popped off, right? And so I think that's why the common thread is that we're also bullish about where it's going because it all comes down to that trusted, almost one-to-one -one relationship it might actually be one to millions, right? But it feels one-to-one -one, and that's what makes it so powerful. 
and, and so many new, like, fresh faces. Like, if you look at, for example, Kabi, Kabi was a factory worker in Italy and gets laid off during the pandemic, right? And he is like the Charlie Chaplin of our time. He doesn't even talk. Just faces. Like, he just Absolutely. makes faces. Yeah. yeah, but he's an international star. He's now the biggest creator on TikTok in the world. And he has, he's a face of Hugo Boss's new brand. He changed what it means to advertise during the Super Bowl with his, you know, State Farm campaign. So these are like, you know, if he didn't have the opportunity to be discovered in that way, can you imagine like the world would be a little bit of a sadder place, right? And I think so, at least. And just being able to provide, you know, an opportunity for, for new voices and fresh faces to, you know, be able to inspire us all. And, you know, Julie, I'm glad you brought up this topic of trust because, you know, I'm sure if you've been paying attention to the creator economy, you know, there's a lot of talk about de-influencing and the fact that there's this disillusionment that a lot of people have with when it comes to creators who may not disclose that something's an ad or it feels like they just took this brand deal for a check. And there's been a lot of pushback. And of course, it's not not every creator is doing this, of course, but you get a few high profile ones kind of getting called out and it can kind of spoil the bunch. So when it comes to de-influencing, knowing that so much of brand deals and so much of that connectivity and that authenticity comes down to trust, do you just think that de-influencing is just going to be just like a blip or do you see it having a, a larger impact on the creator economy? I think it's an interesting topic because I think it's a balance. So what we do at Amazon is we encourage all of our creators to be themselves. So what do I mean by that? If a creator is live streaming, we want them to talk about the product. We ask them to have that product in hand so they can talk about what's good about it. But maybe there's things that they don't like about it too. That's also just as valuable to the customer on the other side. And in the end, that's going to build that relationship further with the customer. And that's good for everybody, right? Same thing with uh, from a shoppable video perspective. We want those videos to be descriptive and demonstrative for a reason, right? And so it's... Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see where it goes overall, but from Amazon Live Shoppable Video perspective, I can say that authenticity and having that aspect of the creators really being themselves, whatever they're going to say in either direction, is really, really important. I don't know if anyone has anything to add to that, because I mean, I feel like well, honestly, this is happening a lot on TikTok, so I feel like yeah, I don't I mean, have to put you on the I, spot. But no, yeah. I I think like the de-influencing like trend is really important for the creator economy. I mean, like look at like all of us, we all have products we love, and we all have brands that we have something to say about them, right? Like, and the fact that creators can come on and you know both speak positively about certain brands and certain products, but also call certain brands and certain products out as well. I think that that balance to your point is like really healthy for the whole ecosystem and really speaks to the authenticity that, you know, we all have to hold both ourselves and brands and creators accountable to, you know, being authentic to, you know, ourselves and what we actually truly believe in. So I, I think that the, the, I don't think that it's going to end. I think like it's just a, a trend that sort of is inherent to, to all of us and how we sort of approach uh, you know, our daily lives when it comes to the brands we know and love. Think about how you shop. I don't buy anything without reading, I don't even know how many customer reviews. Yeah. And I read the good and I read the bad. And a lot of times I'm still going to buy it, but I want... <laughs> yeah, maybe, you're maybe, like, is the bad that bad? I know, that maybe bad. you're getting a little bit too much insight into my wallet. Um, but it's really, really, really important, right? And so that's why that balance is critical. I also think 
and you know, we talked about advertising, you know, shifting into the digital space in the creator economy. You know, I could ask all of you to close your eyes, picture a car commercial, Super Bowl, whenever it might be, and a celebrity that was in the car, and then ask yourself, does that person really drive that car in real life? If you saw them in their neighborhood, would they be pulling out of their driveway in whatever car they were promoting? And you would have a tough time believing it. And for some reason, audiences, for whatever, they were always allowed themselves some cognitive dissonance between, okay, that person maybe doesn't love that brand, but I get it, like they're an endorser. But on the internet, it really matters. And if the audience doesn't feel like there's a real connection between the person or the entity that's promoting a certain product, then it absolutely can work against them. And so there has to be a real fit. When I was at UTA, we were very concerned about ensuring that our clients work with brands that really resonated with them, that they would really stand behind. Now that we're at Candle, we do a tremendous amount of work with brands. And the first question that we ask every single time is, is it an organic fit? Is our audience gonna understand why Hello Sunshine or Moonbug or any of our other business units are working with a particular brand or around a particular cause? And if the answer isn't unequivocally, yes, this makes sense, I don't care how much money there is, we're not gonna do it. And a huge part of the creator economy and you know Adrian said like you feel like we're in our, like the first inning which I agree with and so I'm hoping the second inning will be a broader more robust middle class because what we see is that some influencers some creators like having massive massive success like the more followers you get obviously you know you get a bigger check from a brand but there's a huge discrepancy between like, you know, Mr. Beast and somebody who, you know, just has a couple thousand followers on Instagram. It's still valuable or Instagram or TikTok. It's still valuable, but it's really hard for creators on the lower end and middle end to stitch together a viable income. Like it's like a patchwork of revenue streams that they that they have to cobble together to make a living. So how can we have a more robust and equitable middle class in the creator economy? Yeah, I mean, the opportunities are there. Oftentimes, the middle class of creators are still like they need some education and they need some help figuring out how to connect with the right opportunities. So that's people just become they have millions of followers like overnight. pretty 100%. much. hundred so percent. Like, and then yeah. some creators who have maybe 100,000 followers or even 10,000 followers, they are still very valuable to brands because they might connect with a very niche audience and a very niche community that is so valuable to a brand. And so with TikTok, we are investing in solutions, not only for the top tier of creators, we have many solutions for them, but also for the middle class and even for the emerging creators, we have products called Brand Admission that uh, is for creators who have 1,000 followers and above. And it's an opportunity for creators to kind of build their resume with brands and participate in brand opportunities and make some money as well. And then we also have the TikTok Creator Marketplace that's for creators who have 10,000 followers and above. And we have you know so many different brands, all sizes that are using the Creator Marketplace. We have a uh, creator, actually he's on the grounds at South by um, this week. His name is Cleo Thomas. He's an amazing creator. He does, he's a gaming creator, super engaging, but he's done brand deals with like Uber and Totino's and with Frito-Lay and Dave and & Buster's all through the creator marketplace. So, And he's like, the other thing about the creator marketplace is that we have like badges for creators. So he is, uh, he has a very responsive badge because he replies to opportunities in 24 hours or less. And so that's something that's really important for the middle class of creators to remember is like, this is a job and you have to show up and you have to be professional and, you know, you're, you have many opportunities, but take the time to learn about those opportunities as, as well and kind of study up on this space because 
the sky's the limit when it comes to what your opportunities can look like as a content creator today. Julian, I saw you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to jump in just because um, this is really near and dear to my heart. I've got three teenage boys and they all want to become creators or are creators right now. Oh, no. Do you I want know, that for yeah. them? <laughs> I know. So I, I'm, this is my hedge being up here. It's my hedge. Um, so one of the things that we've been really focused on is building software solutions for the long tail. We just launched uh, a paid messaging link in bio product called superlink.io and it allows anyone to uh, launch one immediately and start communicating. And we have users that have, you know, 500 followers on TikTok or Instagram and they're making, you know, a couple thousand dollars extra a month now from just doing paid messaging. And then you can share videos and PDFs, etc. And the other platform is Fanfix, which um, Simon and Harry are here today with us there. And they just started it a year and a half ago and, and they've seen a 10x growth in revenue because, you know, people are looking, trying to figure it out. And I, we really believe that the middle class is so exciting. There are so many products, so many services and so many different ways to monetize yourself. And we really have to encourage and incentivize and educate. So whether it's live shopping or you know, creating direct monetization, this is something that's going to grow over time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's all about supporting each other. And I'll probably keep on saying that because I, I really feel it. I don't want this to dovetail into something political, but what I love about the creator economy is that it really does mean equality of opportunity. There's so many aspects of society. There's so many realms of business where not everyone has the same access, not everyone has the same opportunity. The starting point is very different. And as a result, the end result oftentimes is very different. But what's great about the creator economy is that it cuts through socioeconomic classes, it cuts through race, it cuts through region, it cuts through religion, and everyone can start at the same place. They all have access to the same tools, most of which are free. They have the access, the ability to reach an audience without any meaningful barriers. I'm not sure that it means that equal access to opportunity means equal outcomes. Like that's the difference, right? But how amazing is it that whether it's, you know, Kabi from Italy or Emma Chamberlain or the Korean couple in Orange County that created Coco Melon 10 years ago, like everyone started at the same place and they may not all end at the same place, but how awesome is it that this creator economy gives everybody the same opportunity to create something really special? Like to me, that's something that I think is incredible and it's very different than how most industries, including media, operated 15 years ago. Until algorithms, you know, you gotta account for like bias and algorithms, but we only have two minutes left and that's a whole different conversation. But I agree, like the barrier to entry is incredibly low, but there is a lot to unpack there that I actually do a lot on the podcast. So anyway, I don't wanna like, <laughs> God, Brett, I wish you would have brought this up in the beginning because <laughs> I like, I really wanna dive into this, but Julie, please continue. <laughs> <laughs> I see you're on a roll there. No, I was just gonna say that I think what's incredible is that for the middle class, the access, I guess just to your point, the access is really there. So if you think about Amazon, our customers have so many interests, right? So if you think about Amazon Live Shoppable Video influencers and creators, we have the big broad appeal creators, but we also have the niche creators. And that's so important because our, our customers are coming from a variety of different backgrounds and are looking from a variety of different things. It could be, I want someone who looks kind of like me so I see how it's going to fit. 
or has a different interest or just overall appeal. And we also see that with, with our brand partners. So when we do sponsorships and content integrations, we work with companies like 23andMe and, and Unilever, et cetera. And when we've seen that, we've seen 75% new to brand uh, direct sales results because they're actually getting to an audience. And Casey, sorry, I just want to acknowledge the point that you made, and I know we just have one minute left, but just Thank really you. quickly, um, I just want to say that there's no finish line, right, when it comes to diversity and inclusion and equality, and it's so important for it to be a very conscious thing in all of our minds that work in the tech space and to make sure we have that human component and keep working towards providing those opportunities and inclusion for everyone. And, you know, as we look forward to the second inning of the creator economy, I'm curious, I mean, like, is there anything that's being overlooked? Are there any innovations? And it doesn't even have to be a specific product or service, but like, is there anything that's being overlooked or not talked about enough as we enter into the creator economy 2.0? I think at some point, the individual creator community will organize in a way that they're not organized today. Uh, If you're an actor, you have SAG. If you're a writer, you have the Writers Guild. If you're you know, work in a factory, you have the machine unionist guild or something like that. Uh, But if you're an individual creator, uh, you have no real forum to have a conversation at scale with big platforms, with big advertisers to try to set and change policy. You don't have any collectively, imagine the healthcare creators could have if they all banded together and purchased. Uh, And so I think that that you'll see some organization take place. uh, And that's something that I'm surprised has not happened yet, uh, but I think will. I think, you know, some of the, the new tools that are coming out are going to be very exciting for these creators, whether it's chat GPT or generative AI, um, that they're going to be using this to, you know, streamline their services in production. I think that's super exciting to see in the next inning how that's going to help everyone, you know, move forward. This industry is extremely fragmented and creator budgets live in all of these different places. They live in media budgets, they live in PR, they live in social, they live in TV, they live in all these different places. And what we really need to do as an industry is we need to centralize the budget that is aimed at paying creators. That way we can, within each brand, we can create, thank you. I'm so passionate about this topic because we need to have center of excellence within each brand, spread the word, uh, because this is a real industry and it requires an expertise. And yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Julie, can you follow that up? Can you get I some mean, applause? You're making, you're making it really hard. Uh, no, I mean, I'm just, for me, I'm, I'm really excited to see where we go also from a tools perspective. I'm really, really bullish about the amount of technological innovation that's, that's an opportunity for creators and what that's going to unlock. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it, everyone. Please, round of applause for these wonderful Casey, panelists. Casey, you're the best moderator. No, 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 no. Thank you, thank you. No, no, no. I'm just a boy on a stage with a clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this episode of Creative Control. And I have to say again that it feels so good to be back bringing you our coverage of the creator economy. And in case you're new here, this is a weekly podcast. So you want to make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I always love hearing from you. So make sure you rate and comment on your chosen podcast platform or tweet me something while Twitter is still around. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. 
and providing editorial oversight is Senior VP of Entertainment, Scott Mebus. 